listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show for you today has Adam Dunnick, who is the chair of the Metropolitan Council in Minnesota. Uh, Adam was a replacement guest, actually. Our uh, featured guests that night uh, ended up canceling on us a few hours before the event. So we were in a bit of a scramble to try and find a replacement. And we reached out to a lot of different people. And Adam uh, was wonderful and agreed to do it for us, which was a big help to us. So if you ever are in need of a keynote speaker at the last minute, you might want to try Adam. Uh, we had him on the show and talked a lot about uh, what the council is doing. So the Metropolitan Council does a lot of the work in the seven-county metro region in Minnesota around uh, trains, planes, uh, ports, shipping, uh, and roads, bridges, all that sort of stuff. Um, and we kind of joked with him that they're viewed both in kind of two opposite spotlights, but people hold them to that they're either this big controlling organization that sees all and meddles in our lives, or they're this ineffective organization that's outdated and we need to get rid of because they can't do anything and won't do anything. Um, I'm not sure where it falls in between those two extremes, but uh, you should be able to figure that out after listening to the show. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. I for very... being my second choice. No, you are, you're so <laughs> handsome. So uh, I appreciate it so much. Uh, and we are very honored to have you here. I, Please, uh, I wanted here. to start with, uh, you started in 2015. And shortly, actually, before you started, I wrote something for MinPost. And I suggested more or less uh, – before they had named a new Metropolitan Council chair, who would want this job? Like, it seems like your whole job is for to just either disappoint or infuriate people uh, because either you're not doing enough to make Minnesota and Minneapolis-St. Paul region into the, the beautiful, shining city on the transit hill that it could be, or you are an overlord of the left-wing powers that be that will crush all individual freedom. So I'm just at which of those are you, and, um, and uh, how's it going? Well, thanks for that. I have to say, I, <laughs> I, have to say I, I read your piece, and I had some second thoughts about the job. And I was thinking to myself... That's my goal. What? No, I'm sorry. I was thinking to myself, do I really want to be dropped off at Shady Oak Station with a paper clip and a rubber band and figure out how to get back? Exactly. That was one of my suggestions for a new Met Council chair should have to figure out how to get home. Also, if you could could take the 21E sometime and just... Stop at Wendy's? Just stop at Wendy's and give up. So why, I mean, in all sincerity, why, would, why do you want, why did you want to do this? I mean, why is this important for you? Uh, because I was crazy enough to think that I could do a good job at it, I think. That's part of it. Um, both my experience and background, some of the work that I had done on the council certainly was applicable. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, we're just at a huge crossroads in this region about some of the issues we face, housing, transit, uh, development, kind of development patterns. And, you know, I thought it was important to have some continuity from the last council. I would certainly miss Sue's leadership. She did a great job as chair. But I thought that I b- brought a good blend of, of being having been there and been through some of those fights and some of those battles, but also understanding the dynamics of what we're facing. So we should talk just a little bit about what the Metropolitan Council is and, and what it does, because, again, I think that uh, folks might read about the Metropolitan Council, and it's usually in a, in a circumstance where people have a very strong view one way or the other. And so just uh, to give us the, ele- the baseline elevator speech of how you are ruining our community. 
I'll start with a, a story. I was at the Botano Project office a couple weeks ago. We were both celebrating the milestone we crossed by um, enacting or acting on some of the uh, budget and scope updates, but it was also a Halloween party. And one of the staff members there had dressed up. She had a, kind of looked like a fairy in a way with wings and all this. And then she had a hammer and she said, I'm the dream crasher. <laughs> it's an in, it's an inside joke here at the office. And I was like, that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. You're fired. That, how's that for crushing dreams? Um, so, okay. I'll, I'll, so back to the elevator yeah, speech. Yeah, so you elevator speech. That's how you start, crushing dreams. And besides crushing dreams, we basically work on both planning and a couple operating functions, operating functions being our wastewater system, our transit system, but planning for things that don't, you know, perfectly match up with city boundaries or county lines, things that are regional in nature, so housing, uh, open space and parks, uh, transportation network, and our, and our wastewater system. In the 60s, we were formed mostly as a response to the environmental uh, catastrophes that were going on. Our, our river was enormously um, uh, under... Um, environmental uh, um, contamination. Our lakes were in the same place. It was really bad. And beyond that, there was significant movement in the 50s and 60s outside, you know, people leaving the city and developing all over place. We needed to build a transportation network to kind of connect the region too. So those were the two issues, both water uh, management, water cleanup, as well as transportation issues that kind of formed the, the belief that the council should come to being. It was also the 60s in which at the time of some folks have, have described to me you know, the Twin Cities got serious about being a major metropolitan area. Then they got serious about professional sports. They got serious about arts and culture and, and theater and music and things of that nature. And then they, you know, academics and political leaders and business leaders came together to say, we want to have a metropolitan council. We want to have a, a regional form of government. It was actually kind of an experiment at the time. Well, I was going to suggest, I mean, the Metropolitan Council <coughs> here in the Twin Cities region is somewhat unique in how much sort of in having a seven-county metro that is trying to coordinate with that many two large cities and um, three million people that you're under the purview of the Metropolitan Council. Are there other examples across the country? There really isn't. There's a few that are that combine some component of the op regional operator and planner, but um, Portland kind of being one. But in terms of how much responsibility falls under the council, it's pretty unique. And so help us understand then how much of what the Metropolitan Council does is planning and suggesting, you know, this is uh, what the future should look like as opposed to uh, actually operating things day to day. Like the we talked a little bit about uh, transportation at the beginning. Sure. Um, I think, you know, it's it's hard to divide the labor other than maybe in terms of our departments and the number of people working on them because we it, it, we try to make it as interchangeable as possible. That's hopefully a benefit of having the council as a, both as a planner and understanding the trends and what's happening, but also as an operator and working within that. But the, the operation system is probably more like in the neighborhood of two-thirds to three-quarters of our staff and resources and, and budget and all that. So it's more heavily leaned on the operations day-to-day. -day. The planning also goes in cycles, so we have a 10-year regional framework plan that we adopt, and then underneath that regional framework, there's systems plans for parks, uh, for, um, for transportation, and for water. And so that planning doesn't happen all the time every year. It happens, you know, every couple years. And so uh, you mentioned getting to uh, following some of the trends that come out of the the work that you do. What are some of those trends, I guess, that we're starting to see? What are the things that uh, you see in, and you're reacting to as far as where the Twin Cities and where the region is going? 
Sure. A couple of the main trends. One is that we're getting older, like everywhere else in the country. Our population is aging. Yes. Not me, though. I can't tell from this audience. You all look so young and handsome. But, no, our population is aging, and we're also getting more diverse, which is also like the the rest of the country. And so that's a little bit... But how are we special? How are we special? Yeah. I want to be different. Um, Because we have a Met Council. Yay! Uh, (laughs) That's job security. So... um, uh, so we're getting older and we're getting more. What does that mean? Does that that means we need more wastewater systems? I don't. <laughs> it actually doesn't. Our 30-year plan shows that our eight wastewater system plants we have, our treatment plants, are sufficient for the next 25 years. <laughs> we don't need to expand on them. But uh, it does mean that we need additional transit investment, which I've been talking about since before I got the job, and certainly a lot since I got it. Fantastic. So uh, transit is something probably. One of the things people hear about the most with the Metropolitan Council. So uh, let's go through. So what are the big transit projects that uh, we should be excited or terrified of, depending on our political point of view? (laughs) Sure. Um, So the two in the closest to the windshield uh, view here right now, one is Southwest. Wait, are we getting hit by a car in this scenario? Like. We're, we're all about buses here. So okay, so we're bus, getting bus hit by a bus. All right, continue. Or, a, or an LRV or, you know. It's good. Uh, or a gondola. Uh, are there gondolas in the plan? There's probably a gondola or two in the parks plan. Awesome. Yeah, all absolutely. Right. <laughs> or depending on the station area planning for some of these projects. So I, I, I interrupted you with a bizarre question. So uh, where what the projects that we should be, uh, that we're looking at, most immediately sort of. So there's this one that's been kind of flying under the radar. You probably haven't heard of it, called Southwest LRT. It's been very... Is there a Southwest uh, part (laughs) of the region? I am sorry. I've never heard of it. So that's the one that's uh, certainly the most talked about, and it's uh, coming up quickly in terms of a a deadline. We need to do two more things in the next year to kind of get this project moving. One is to secure the last of the state's funding share, which is approximately $135 million. The second is to complete the uh, NEPA process, which is a very complicated federal environmental process that I won't bore your audience with. Uh, But to do that in the next probably six to nine months, be set by midsummer, we'll actually be ready to have construction bids out and shovels in the ground soon. So the project's a real reality from our perspective in terms of planning, and we've worked through so many hurdles, we're hoping that uh, that comes to fruition next year. That's the next big LRT project. It's actually a green line extension. So if you're riding the green line today down to Target Field, that train will continue to go uh, into Minneapolis, through North Loop of Minneapolis. Will it, will it still be the green line then? Or it will, will. It will still be the green line. It won't change into like the magenta line or something no, or like the, that? or the pink line. The pink line. So, uh, what, so you're talking about it's starting to happen next year. Are there legislative things that need to happen in order for that to continue on that timeline? There are. We need some money. We need some resources. And so we'll be... What has everyone got in their pockets right now? Uh, are you going to pass the hat? <laughs> yes, for the Southwest <laughs> Light Rail. We can do it. Uh, now, how, what needs to happen? Um, a number of th- one of a number of things needs to happen. Either a bonding bill needs to be it needs to contain Southwest LRT, or a sales tax that includes kind of building out the transit network. That's my hope, and that's kind of transit and transportation advocates' hope is that we've been pushing this boulder up a hill for three or four years now, and hopefully a big transportation bill gets done that includes roads and bridges and transit. Uh, for the region. So let me, let's just dig into Southwest Light Rail a little bit because I hear opponents on both sides, folks who uh, really 
don't necessarily like uh, trains or whatnot, but then other folks who say, uh, it's the why are we building more trains out to the suburbs, right? Like, why not invest more in the dense population centers? Sure. I think we need to do both, frankly. I mean, it's not an either or, but in terms of what's in front of us at the council and what's available to us through the funding mechanisms that the legislature's approved is to build out a regional network of LRT lines. We're also trying to do what you just described, which is make our bus service better, make the shelters better, make them more frequent, have more frequent service where the routes perform well. Um, so we want to do both clearly, but the, the Southwest line, one, I'll say, uh, it's not just building out a line out to the suburbs so they can get in the city faster. It's also connecting the rest of the region out to jobs out in Southwest uh, Metro. Right now, there's 175,000 jobs out along that corridor, and in 2030, there's going to be uh, probably another 50 or 60,000 jobs just in that corridor, just connected to that line, not, not to mention, you know, other feeder services and other connections we can make beyond that. So that's what it's really about. When we look at LRT lines, we don't try to build them just everywhere. You know, we're <laughs> looking... <laughs> I, I kept sound a straight face you through sound, that. Uh, you sound convinced. Uh, always, I'm, I'm an improviser. I'm always convinced. I, um, <laughs> I, We're building them to where jobs are and where educational opportunities are. Where are jobs not uh, that we should never build something? <laughs> Sounds like you're trying to set a trap for me. <laughs> no. As a regionalist, if there's not jobs there, hopefully there's people there, and we can connect people to jobs and educa educational opportunities. So I do want to – one thing you <clears> said <throat> that I was interesting is that this is the piece that's in front of the Met Council, which has something to do with legislative priorities both on the state and national level because some of this is national, federal dollar. Mm -hmm. So how much of this uh, – how much when you're thinking about a project is determined by this is the best thing for this region versus uh, the feds have said there's dollars available for this kind of thing thing and you're like well that might have actually only been our third choice but the dollars are there that's a really great question from someone of your caliber thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's been one of those days uh, no that's 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 the biggest <laughs> go on i'll take that No, but that's that's you just you actually just encompass the biggest challenge of our job, which is in a resource scarce environment. How can we do what we think is the best to do? So with Southwest, we've secured over seven hundred million dollars in local uh, funds for the project. It needs to happen. It's ready to go. For other projects, maybe a little bit further down the queue, we're going to be in a situation saying, what is what's a better trade-off? Do we invest in a in a bus line in Minneapolis or St. Paul or a different or Bloomington or Richfield? part of the region where there's really strong demand and service versus do we go out to where there's not uh, service today, but we also want to expand and grow out that way. It's a, it's a, it's a trade-off. That's kind of the position we're put in. And I think the challenge is mostly driven by how diverse and um, challenging at times the, the transit coalition in the region can be. You're trying to make east, west, uh, north, and south all happy and go along for the vision and understand that it matters for them in the long run. But you're also trying to maximize your return on each investment you make. So you're saying, you know, the first line's got to be the airport to downtown because that's the best connector. The next line's got to be downtown University of Minnesota to, to the next downtown. Well, if you don't live in those parts of the region, how do you say 
I, you know, I'm connected somehow to that regional vision, so we need to have a map that has a lot of lines on it and has a lot of hope and, and future for, for the entire region. As a personal question, you, uh, you take transit, right? Like, uh, I took the bus here. He took the bus <laughs> here. He tweeted a photo of this, which I appreciate a lot in that how much does that, can. How much does that matter, though, in terms of that you have personal experience with uh, transit or something like that, and then how you think about how to actually develop some of these plans? I think it matters a whole lot because, you know, it, it, your personal experiences inform the priorities you have and the decisions you make. And so it makes me ask the questions of Metro Transit and Met Council, okay, why are we doing it this way? Why couldn't we do it that way? And to sort of just have that perspective. But, um, but How I also often do you hear, because we've always done it that way. <laughs> you hear that a lot, but that's, you know, the nature of the work, and you're up against kind of that sometimes lack of energy or, or whatever. But, you know, I also think uh, for, for folks that don't take transit all the time, there's a real good reason in this region. It's not very conducive. It's not very easy to do it. It's not very intuitive. And so we're working on that and trying to trying to make that better. Uh, so we t uh, talked a lot about Southwest Light Rail. I, I, we have a BRT line that's going to open soon. And we should probably just say uh, what BRT is for, the, like, the one person who doesn't know, I'm sure. So... Uh, Bus rapid transit. Okay, good. Uh, so we've gotten that out of the way. But uh, what? So we should. What is the difference between bus rapid transit and uh, a regular bus? And where are we doing this line? And sure. when we talk about BRT, we're talking about a bus service that looks and feels like light rail, where you're paying before you get on, where the doors open both at the front of the bus and in the, sometimes the middle and the back of the bus. Um, where the shelters and the amenities are much more similar and aligned to, to light rail. And the frequency is the same, too. We're talking about 10 to 8-minute headways during peak, and sometimes it's a little bit less than off-peak, like 15 minutes. So the red line, which now is an app from, runs from Apple Valley up to Mall of America, is a currently running BRT. But we also have, just to make it even more complicated, arterial BRT and regular kind of highway BRT. Uh, the highway BRT lines, again, they feel like light rail, and that's the goal for, for the arterial busways as well. The arterial busway you're talking about is the A-line. The A-line, because we've never had an A-line before. Like, we've no, we don't have a number one bus, but we will have an A-line. Right. I know these things. <laughs> it's not named for me, not the Adam line. It's. But it could be. Uh, so uh, so what's the, where is the A-line? The A-Line starts at 46th Street Station in South Minneapolis, runs due east um, through Highland Park and along uh, the Ford Parkway, turns north on Snelling, and will run due north up to Rosedale uh, Mall right now. It's, it's currently the Route 84, and it will connect the Blue Line and the Green Line, so, and to a soccer stadium. Uh, it's, yes, it's yeah, right, exciting. Got, uh, the crowd. Uh, so... The question I hear a lot of folks ask is, is, if BRT is so great, why not just do that? Why do a, why do a train ever? Um, there's a couple reasons. One is arterial BRT doesn't have a funding source the same way LRT and other highway projects do. The, the current uh, – this is going to get really into the weeds. The current transit funding in the region is done by County's Transit Improvement Board, or CTIB, as well as the council. We work together on that. And CTIB doesn't fund arterial BRT projects. That's up to us to do that. So what happens is when we've seen the system grow over the last number of years since 2008, we add things like the green line, we add things like North Star and the red line. But what we aren't able to do as, be as uh, do as best for the region is, is a metro transit agency here is invest in basic bus and arterial BRT routes. Why doesn't CTIB do, uh, invest in those things? 
Is it a legislative piece, or is it just within them? Or? Can you all uh, write down your county board mem members' names and, ad and emails and contact them? And <laughs> I'm just, um, if you can... It's, um, it's, I think it partially is grown out. I'm not doing anything <laughs> later, so... Uh. Um, it's a decision made by the counties, and they're part of CTIB, so are we. We are kind of a minority vote of, of CTIB, but it's a decision made by them, and I think part of it is they're paying a portion of a sales tax. They want to see that return to their counties, so this gets back to that balance of how do we uh, make sure we're making the investments in, in places like Hennepin or Ramsey County where transit service is more in high demand, but we're also balancing that with the needs of Washington and Dakota and Anoka County who are also make up CTIB and say, we're paying a portion of the sales tax. We want to see some service, and we know that transit's an important link for our community too. So I have two uh, last questions, and I should say, as I said at the top, we're going to open it up to you all for questions in the second half of the show, so please think about questions you have for our guests. Uh, one, I I wanted to get to uh, the 2040 plan that the Metropolitan Council has. Agenda 21. I, I th exactly. Thank you. Uh, I was actually going to make that joke, but you stole it. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so that, uh, the Thrive 2040 plan with the Met Council, actually, uh, there are a lot of folks who think that, you know, you are going to prescribe uh, when we are allowed to use the toilets that you will control. So uh, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about what Thrive 2040 is and how long we have until we are all just part of the matrix? <laughs> so Thrive 2040 was adopted a number of years ago, a couple of years ago, uh, 2013 now. And what it is, it's the 30-year the, the regional framework plan. And I think, you know, the reason that it's caused such consternation is has to do a lot with the demographic changes that I talked about earlier, the aging population, the changing uh, demographics in the region, as well as kind of that happening at the same time that you've seen a lot of ingrowth and, and redevelopment happening kind of in the in the urban and, and, and older suburban parts of the region. Growth has kind of slowed down at the suburban and emerging edges of the region. And so we're at a point in time where people are saying, is the Met Council making that happen? And the answer is no. <laughs> Consumers and decision makers and People who are either uh, staying here or moving here from other regions are helping to make that decision, and most of it has to do with a math problem. And the math problem is, again, people getting older, empty nesters, trying to figure out where it is they're going to live. And if they lived in a 4,000-square-foot house with, and now they don't have kids in their, kids in their home, where, where are they going to live? They're probably going to live somewhere else, multifamily or rental or condo or the like. And then on the, on the other side of the demographic uh, spectrum, you have younger people either not marrying or marrying older or having no kids or having less kids. And all these things add up to a significantly declining demand for the single-family home. And the single-family home has driven development for 40 years in this country. And so we're just at a different point in time and what that looks like for the region. It means that, to me, the cities and the counties who understand that and know that the future demographic trends are going to favor the cities and counties that are prepared for that and have the housing stock for that and understand kind of how to attract uh, those people that are going to be at a competitive dis uh, advantage. So <clears throat> I'm interested all, I, I, how much then, because the way that you've described it, it sounds like you're reacting almost entirely to the trends. But, I mean, is there some element of it where the Metropolitan Council is trying to guide things in, to some level to say, you know, the trends are going this way, and also we want to make investments that will make the region do this or do that? Sure. It's a little bit of both, but I think the you know, if there is a 
leverage point or a, uh, a point on you know tilting the deck one way or another in terms of who's driving those decisions, it's tilted heavily in favor of local communities, and that's fine. I mean, the council has oversight and some say of development, but a lot of the community develop the community decisions are based at the city level. We can prescribe certain amounts of affordable housing, for example, but communities don't have to act on that. It's not it's not requ a requirement. Um, so that's a, a part of it here, and that's just kind of I think it's a tension that, that we have here at the state in general in terms of local control versus state or or uh, regional control. So uh, last question uh, before again you all have a chance in the second half. Uh, your favorite place and your least favorite place. Ready, set, go. My favorite place in Minnesota, in here in the seven county metro. Best city, uh, worst city. <laughs> Well, worst city, I'm not going to choose one in the seven-county region. I'll choose one, like, just outside, like like Hudson, Wisconsin or something. That's easy. <laughs> For all the leapfroggers. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, my favorite city, that's a real hard call. So when I, I went on my, my seven-county tour when I first started the job, and what I found was, especially since I'm young and I have two kids that are two and four, and we've talked a little bit about moving, I discovered a lot of local elected officials are realtors and would like to show me around. <laughs> no like, conflict of would, interest would like there. To they'd like to show me around their city or county and say, hey, move down here. Um, but no, it, um, I don't know if I have a favorite city. That's, that's really put me on the spot. I, and the easy one is Minneapolis because that's where I'm from. Sure. And I've lived here since I moved here in 2002. But beyond Minneapolis, we'll say Sunfish Lake. Saint Paul. All right. Since I there. Uh, <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to bring him back in the second half of the show. But please, I can't say this enough: a tremendous round of applause for Chairman. Okay, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and I will rush towards you with this microphone in a non-threatening way. Here we go. Hi, I have a question, and that is, um, I, I read, I think, that you actually like to bike, which is wonderful, and I wanted to know if you could give me some kind of information on the long-range plans for developing um, bike transport and bike lanes, and I, a, a little additional question, we actually drove down on Bryant, mm -hmm. and I find it very interesting that there are these designated bike streets, and yet the streets haven't changed at all, they just have those wonderful symbols, so that when people get hit by cars on their bikes, they have they could lie on the symbol, possibly. Or, so. Thank you. Dark. All right. Off to a good start. Okay. So, uh, both uh, uh, bike uh, planning and uh, murder. So, if you can just go ahead. Sure, I'll try to address both of those topics. No, um, the the last transportation policy plan we adopted just about a year ago now included a regional bike uh, network, which actually is different than a recreational trail, but actually a bike commuting trail, or bike commuting network, rather, throughout the whole region. So it's being planned. One of the purposes for us to do that is to say, are there gaps in the system between city count, uh, city lines, county boundaries, things of that nature? That's, so that's kind of more the focus where we have additional kind of individual bike plan. This is the easy cop-out part for me where I say it's up to the cities because it is. The cities plan their own bike network themselves inside the city, and that's up to the council and the mayor and, and the like. So other communities do that, and some of them have done a great job um, all over the region, and others of them are kind of just starting to come along. But from a regional perspective, we think we're as you know bike-connected as we've ever been and are continuing to try to do that. Okay, cool. Uh, other questions? Yes. Sir. Okay, well, let me get over here, and then I'll come over there. Yes, right here. Um, hi, I was a dedicated transit rider in 2004 when the last transit, or only transit strike here in the metro occurred. And Ooh, 
hard. I was a reverse commuter going from Minneapolis out to the suburbs, Plymouth specifically, mm -hmm. and I did see a lot of people lose their jobs as a result of that strike, which went on for at least a month and maybe longer. And at the time, I was actually working for a transit planner consultant. And I just wonder, you know, like we have a lot of these regional um, corridor coalitions. Mm -hmm. What's being done to service people who live and die by transit? Because that community is big here in the Twin Cities and, and they totally dropped off the rails. So why aren't employers being forced to invest in affordable transit for this population? Um, I'm not sure I totally understand your question. I mean, I kind of do, but can you maybe try um, to ask it a different what's way? What's being done for affordable transit for those in the Twin Cities that really need it? Sure. Um, so a couple things. One is a pilot program we're trying to roll out now that includes a low-income uh, fare. So right now the regular fare is $1.75, 225 in the peak, and to try to have a different fare structure for people that can't afford it. That's one idea we've had, and we've been looking at how to do that. It's typically hardest to do logistically in terms of who do you say deserves that fare. Either you could try to do it by a corridor, or you could try to say if somebody is on you know a Section 8 voucher or something, should they also get a reduced fare or something to that effect. So that's one way we've tried to be a little bit more creative. Se uh, Seattle's done a little bit more on the low-income uh, fare rate than I think we've done. We get pressure on both sides. We get a lot of pressure mostly from the legislature to raise our fares at times, and we've not done that since 2008. But um, so our fares are pretty low nationally when you look at that. But we also have to think about kind of a fare box recovery, which is the amount of dollars that go into the system versus how much it costs to provide a ride. Um, but what you just described is, I think, in the context of a larger challenge, which is how do people move around more affordably, which is why we're seeing biking and walking and taking transit rise so much. Both of those three, or all three of those modes, rather, have gone up between 15 and 25 percent over the last uh, five or six years versus driving a car has actually either declined or stayed about the same. And so how can we move people around affordably is, your is I think, the essence of your question. Um, and it's hard to do in a transit system that's kind of finite and figuring out how do we, how do we expand, it, uh, expand it to areas where we don't serve now versus how do we provide more frequency to those areas that we're providing service today and, and have it be more reliable. It's a, it's a, it's a real challenge. As, as citizens, do you wish we did more? I mean, could we get referendums out there? What's, like, what can we do as citizens to help a, a planning body like the Met Council that isn't, you know, is not in funded internally? That's a great do question. That kind of thing? That's a really good question. I think two things. I'll answer it this way. One, I think we're actually building towards trying to accomplish that with something that may or may not happen this spring at a legislative session. So much of our funding is so tied up at the legislature. But if a sales tax was passed or an ability for either counties to do an opt-in sales tax or for the council to help administer a sales tax, that would go a long way towards having there be long-term dedicated funds for transit. If that doesn't pass this spring, I do think we should kind of go back to the drawing board and think about how to do this differently. If it should be done done differently, funded differently, structured differently, whatever it takes, because I just think that we need a transit system in the worst way. And if the council itself is one of the challenges or inhibitors of us doing that, then, you know, let's let's start, let's uh, kind of rethink the, the vision. Okay, there's a, uh, did that get at some of it? I hope, uh, that was a great question, but there were a lot of hands, so I want to make sure I'm going to circle up and around this way. 
what's your favorite thing about doing regional transit, regional planning in Lake Elmo? I ordered a Surly and I got, you know, like a Manhattan or something. Can I just say that this is the <laughs> first time that uh, that anyone has ever ordered a drink for someone on stage and it wasn't me. But that's okay. No one ordered uh, this for me, so thank you to uh, who did this. Cheers. Uh, so yes, thank you. Uh, thank thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, so is it bourbon? Right. Okay. Does that answer your question, sir? <laughs> back, back That's to, a very, like, Elmo answer, Back actually. to Bill's question. Good to see you, Bill. Um, I think, what's the most interesting part or challenging part? Or your favorite thing. Favorite yeah. thing. So I went out, one of, one of my f- first events when I was going out to Washington County, I went and had lunch with the city council at Lake Elmo and the former city manager. He was still there at the time, and things were going really good, and the new, you know, a new council had taken over. And they said, we just want to understand your vision for Gateway and how the gold line, which is the bus rapid transit line out 94, will fit in with our community. And we had a good meeting about it, and everything seemed fine. And a number of the council members you know, sent me emails, sent me thank you notes, saying, this is great. This is the first time we've seen a Met Council chair out here. We know you'll take our needs seriously. And then a couple weeks later, you know, kind of all hell breaks loose in Lake, in Lake Elmo. But you know, our, our relationship has been pretty good with them. And I think it's due largely to the fact that they want to maintain a certain size and development pattern in their, as they call it, their downtown or their main part of town, and then concentrate the growth out in the 94 corridor. So that's what we intend to do. That's what we've been working with them on. And and as long as we can kind of keep advancing that project, we'll we'll get there. But um, I I didn't have the challenge of explaining to them that state statute requires them to grow by a certain amount since they took... The investment, for those that don't know, there's this lawsuit between Lake Elmo and the Met Council, basically them saying, the council can't tell us we have to grow by X amount, and the fact is we actually can. There's not a lot of state (laughs) uh, leeway and authority we have, but on development we do. If we make an investment of a certain amount of infrastructure investment, especially in wastewater uh, uh, sewer, sewer mains, then a community then in turn agrees to grow by the amount of people that we require. And if they don't, they have to pay us back. Because essentially they're paying back the region. The rest of the region is helping to subsidize the, the growth. So, um, but I never had to deal with some of those sticky issues. So how do you how do you make them grow? Do you just do you like set up dates? We put, we put or some we put some water on them and bring the sunshine out and that's nice. Uh, okay, uh, creepy. Other questions? Were there uh, were there other hands up here? I'm sorry. I wanted to make sure I got. The fo- oh, sorry, right here in the front. Oh, the front's owning this. No, whatever, back row. Here. <laughs> so there's been a lot of conversation lately about the achievement gap, schools being segregated, neighborhoods being segregated, and some criticism of the Met Council for not having teeth in the affordable housing goals. Mm-hmm. What's your reaction and sense of that? Um, there's two school of thoughts about housing that are oftentimes in competition, and we try to not pick a side, I guess, for lack of a better term, but there's this uh, school of thought that says you need to move people out of communities of concentrated poverty and into communities of high opportunity to give them a better chance at making it education-wise, uh, jobs, connecting to jobs and the like. Or uh, there's this invest in, a, in an area and revitalize the area. And oftentimes those communities get pitted against each other and it's, you know, parts of Minneapolis saying, we need the money here. We want to revitalize our community. We should be able to get a job here and, and succeed here. Um, so at the council of our housing policy plan kind of says 
tries to tip a cap to both and say both are really important. We need to try to do what we can to do both, but we're in a resource-scarce environment, so it's hard to financially support both of those approaches. I think that um, what I would say about it is for those that think that the council has too much say over affordable housing, just take a look at the numbers. And we just we study this every year. The last uh, report showed that the region built less than 1,000 units of affordable housing in the region. And about 600 of those units were in Minneapolis and in like two or three different projects. So the region itself isn't building the affordable housing it needs. but. You know, affordable housing has its own challenges in terms of planning and expense and how do you come up with good financial ways to sustain that, and that's something that I think the council can and should play a more active role in. What Can I just, as a quick follow-up, what authority does the Met Council have as far as encouraging or trying to spur uh, affordable housing? We have a couple different uh, ways, but it's more carrot-based, incentive-based. We have our Livable Communities Program, which uh, we give out every year. It's in the neighborhood of 5 to $10 million of Livable Communities funds. And communities are only eligible if they sign up to uh, basically agree to try to meet the demand of the affordable housing needs in their part of the region. A second way in which we've tried to kind of weigh into this debate, and we got a lot of criticism for it, is how the Transportation Advisory Board spends the federal regional solicitation funds. Those are federal kind of flexible dollars that the region gets and the MPO allocates. The MPO is both the TAB and the Met Council both together. And so the council uh, wanted to have some of the scoring criteria have to do with affordable housing and the concentrations of area poverty and, and the like. And so we put that in the scoring criteria, which we got criticized for because, again, people said, well, all you're trying to do is put more money into the center cities or into areas where there's already poverty. And our point is, no, it's important to consider the connection of housing as it relates to transportation investments, too. Okay. There was a – I believe this – you had a hand right sure. up here in the front there. Sure. Hi. How are you planning to spend your massive pay increase? <laughs> Oh, do you need another one of those? Uh, I don't really have a good answer for that. I kind of just spend my money the way I've always spent it on daycare and on the house payment and on those types of things. Uh, thank you for coming, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm going to go over here. <clears throat> here, let me, let me be a little bit of a wiser ass. Um, the pay increase, for those that don't know, was based on a part-time job, which now became full. Um, so it's a full-time job, for those that don't know. <laughs> Can I actually, I will ask a serious yeah, question sure. to this, which is just um, how, why is it different? Why do we want a full-time Met Council chair? Because we've always had a part-time one. You're the first full-time one. Right. Um, I mean, my take is, is the enterprise has grown significantly in size and scope, and the work is that much more important. Not that it always hasn't been important, but I think there's just been a history that the council position, the council chair position should be somebody who's retiring or kind of on their way out of public life or that kind of thing, and that's fine. Maybe somebody sh like that should have done the job instead of me, but... Um, Aww. <laughs> but <laughs> You're our favorite second choice. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but I like to think that, you know, the job requires it. It's, it's mostly a function of time. So if you're able to do it part-time but give it all the time in the world, it's a 60 to 70-hour job week uh, or hour-a-week job, and so that's the biggest no difference I've noticed. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I just randomly... Uh, I was just going to ask, the, the president of the Minneapolis City Council, uh, I think annually, uh, makes an allegation that the sewer access charges, that there's a degree to those that are subsidizing suburban sprawl. Mm -hmm. Is that, do you, do you think that's true, or is she just kind of out on a limb? We should probably unpack this. And this is money that 
businesses and I think probably developers also pay in order to hook into the uh, Met Council's wastewater treatment system. Right. Yep. The SAC charge is something I heard a lot about as a council member, hear a lot about as chair. I think it's it's hard because we've always tried to say we have a growth pace for growth model and at the time at certain parts of time, depending on how the regions developed, the SAC charges were were kind of more regularly paid where they occurred and where they helped pay for the, the infrastructure costs. But as you've seen in the last number of years, there's a lot more uh, redevelopment and in-growth and infill development, and so that kind of changes the, the math calculation. And if you're in Minneapolis or St. Paul or, or somewhere of that nature and you say, wait a minute, SAC charges have already been paid here. We're just hooking into a system that already exists that's already been paid for. Why should we have to pay for it? Um, I think there's a legitimate argument there. There just hasn't been, on our end, a better way to think about how to pay for those infrastructure needs in the long run. Does and that so end up, though, subsidizing s suburban development growing out on the, the fringes? No, because, I mean, there's there's costs in all places, you know, in the inner city, in the first-ring suburbs, developing parts of the suburban areas, too. It all requires upkeep and maintenance. Uh, that's kind of the, the way in which our budget works to help, you know, basically – uh, fix the pipes that are under there, and we're not really building any new pipes. There's a, a, the occasional new sewer interceptor, inter, interceptor that we're building, but very rarely. Okay, two last things. Uh, as folks know, uh, we only announced that you were going to be on the show uh, about at 5 o'clock, and, I mean, it's a tremendous thank you so much for, for joining us in such a short amount of time. It, since 5 o'clock, I've gotten multiple tweets from people wanting me to ask you about the pedestrian bridge for the Viking Stadium. Sure. Uh, uh, and so if you can just uh, – <laughs> if you can address – first of all, explain that project in sure. particular and then uh, why why we need it. So I'll tell you a couple things. One, we were the last party brought to the table by the team, by the Sports Facilities Authority to talk about, boy, we're going to try to move 50, 60, 70,000 people in and out of here, but we don't have a very good plan for how we're going to do that. In and, and out of the stadium. In and out of the stadium. And so uh, – you know, we get to that part of the conversation a little bit late, which is unfortunate. And um, so we weren't a part of the deal, and the deal that helps fund the stadium was not a part of how we, you know, interact with the transit service, essentially. So it is basically brought to us as a policymaking body for Metro Transit saying, operationally, we need this. It's a huge safety issue. We need to be able to move people in and out of an event relatively quickly, efficiently, and uh, from a business standpoint, if we're able to move people really efficiently, we can actually change our mode share. And by mode share, I mean, you know, sometimes 20% of the fans will come on transit, sometimes 30 or 40%. And if we're able to move them in and out pretty quickly, we can actually do it in a way that will help pay for the infrastructure improvement we have to make. I know it's frustrating to have to spend that kind of money on uh, either an event or an event-based um, building like the Viking Stadium. I get that. Um, so when the proposal came out, we got a lot of pushback from me and other council members saying, we're not paying this whole bill. And Metro Transit had to then go back and negotiate that with the team a little bit. It went from the, t the Metro Transit and Met Council are going to pay 6 or $7 million. I think it was estimated at 6 but then we had to widen the bridge from 25 feet to 30 feet, so it was more, to $7 million. Us pay it all, the team pays nothing to us figuring out how to split it 50-50. Well, the time in which that took for it to play out actually cost us some time on the construction schedule, 
when we put it out for bids, construction contractors were thinking, how are we going to get in and out and do that project before June or July, in which case penalties start to accumulate to us, so the bids were even higher. So now how do we figure out how to get this thing approved by the council and supported by the board? Uh, because again, you know, we're talking about resources that could go to shelters for everybody, could go to additional bus service for everybody. So it is, it's a hard decision for us to make, but ultimately, uh, it's a safety issue, and I think there's a reputation issue, too. There was a, a Super Bowl in New Jersey a couple years ago. The, the game got out at midnight or whatever, 11 o'clock at night, and people didn't get out of the stadium and get off, get off the trains out of New Jersey back to where they were going for, over, some of them, three to four hours. And multiple people lost their jobs about that. The transit agency suffered significant losses there. And... That's not to say that that's that, you know that would have happened uh, at the, you know in our region. Hopefully, we would have figured out a way to do it at a cost-efficient level if we had to. But ultimately, we wanted to um, put uh, put together the package that would help the team out, help the sports facilities authority out, and also ultimately help increase uh, the safety and awareness for our operators as well. Did you consider just having like the Vikings like linebackers line the streets and just like block? So that people Similar, could just walk? Similarly, we had a conversation about what the Metro Transit Police budget would be to have to have people out there to, mm -hmm. you know, withhold fans from walking across the tracks. And it's just going to be a – it's a busy intersection today, and hopefully when we do the blue and green line extensions, it's even busier in terms of how – Many trains are in and out of there during events. Oh, good. Um, so, uh, last question, which is, you've been how long, you've only been in the job now six months? Not, uh, just about a year. Just about a year. year excuse January. me, yep. a year in January. Um, so, uh, how, how do how will you measure whether or not you've been successful? Are are there things that you think about in terms of, you know, by the time I'm done with this, I want X or Z or Y uh, to be done that you'll point back to and say that was. That's what I wanted to get done there. Well, hopefully the Green Line project is, the extension is under construction. Hopefully the Blue Line extension is closely behind it. And hopefully we're building out, expanding, and enhancing our transit system. That's without question my top priority. It was as a council member. It remains to be so. But in addition to doing the big lines, which are the ones who eat up the headlines and make get all the attention, we're enhancing the rest of our service too, the, the base bus service, which really is the driver um, that's the biggest issue, I think. If there are other issues, I want to see the council continue to be leaders on racial and uh, social equity issues. I want us to try to do a better job of bridging housing issues with transportation and the kind of the questions that were raised about the affordability of that all. That's a big part of us. But uh, also importantly, the council is under attack all the time, and hopefully by the time I'm done, people have realized that there's an important reason for the council to exist, and that uh, reason is founded in smart policy and smart growth and, and accommodating the hopefully million people that are going to be here in the next 25 years. Now, that's a lot to wish for as a Met Council Chair, but hopefully looking back, uh, we've moved, moved the dial on all those issues uh, in a big way. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause for our savior, the best second update we've ever had, Chairman Adam Dunnick. Thank you for listening. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.